Good morning, wherever you are, and welcome to St. Michael's in the Morning, a podcast series encompassing everything from sermons and services to special audio presentations, brought to you by St. Michael's Episcopal Church in Austin, Texas. For more information or to make a donation to St. Michael's, please visit www.st-michaels.org. Welcome, everyone, to episode 49 of Calm Words for Anxious Hearts, and this is part two in a six-week series we're doing on the prophets, and today we've got a great prophet, one of my favorite prophets, and that's the prophet Elijah. But to talk about Elijah and his context, I first feel like I need to give you a little background info, and so let me do that now. Um, The people of Israel, you may recall, were a family. Remember, to be an Israelite was to be a child of Abraham. It meant that you were part of God's covenant people, a part of God's plan to bless and redeem this fallen world. The Israelites had a bond of blood and a bond of faith, but whenever King Solomon died, who was the son of King David, these family bonds were broken. There was a civil war, and the people of Israel were split, sadly never to be rejoined again. There was the southern kingdom of Judah, also known as the House of David, and there was the northern kingdom of Israel. And so the family of God has to go through a painful and messy divorce. There are two kingdoms, and there are two kings. And so today, we're going to be talking about the northern kingdom, The first king of the north is Jeroboam, and he is an evil, evil king. And like all evil people, he is driven by fear, the fear of losing his power. You see, the southern kingdom is in Jerusalem, which is where God told his people to worship him and the temple that Solomon built. And Jeroboam does not want his people to travel to Jerusalem to worship God and the temple because If they do, he's fearful they may stay there and switch their allegiances. After all, there's only one temple, and this king does not want his people to give allegiance to the southern king, which means that Jeroboam would then be out of a job. And so what does Jeroboam do? Jeroboam has two golden calves made, and he sets them up as formal idols for the people to worship. What Jeroboam essentially tells his people is this. You don't need to go to Jerusalem to worship God. That is way too much trouble. And so here, here are two idols. Why not let these be your gods? Worship them. And of course, the people do. And so a precedent is set. Idolatry begins in the northern kingdom of Israel. Well, Jeroboam dies and king after king takes his place, each of whom is worse than the one that came before. The northern kingdom is spiraling deeper and deeper into sin, farther away from God, and just when things seem like they cannot get any worse, King Ahab takes the throne. And here's what the Bible has to say about Ahab, and this comes from 1 Kings And I'm using the message translation. Ahab did even more open evil before God than anyone yet, a new champion in evil. 
It wasn't enough for him to copy the sins of Jeroboam. No, he went all out, first by marrying Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and then by serving and worshiping the god of Baal. He built a temple for Baal in Samaria and then furnished it with an altar for Baal. Worse, he went on and built a shrine to Asherah. He made the God of Israel angrier than all the previous kings of Israel put together. Here ends the reading. So here we have King Ahab, who marries a pagan woman by the name of Jezebel, and Jezebel's one claim to fame is how much she hates the God of Israel and how much she hates the prophets, which is tough because Ahab then puts her in charge of all religion in the kingdom. And Jezebel has a pretty clear agenda, and that's to completely destroy the worship of Yahweh so that her God, whose name is Baal, can be worshipped. Out with Yahweh, in with Baal, that is her platform. And what is her strategy? Well, it's mass genocide. She starts systematically killing all of God's prophets. Well, God sees this, and God is quick to act. God sends a prophet, Elijah by name, to confront Ahab and his wife by telling them that God will judge Israel by sending a drought. In other words, God is going to make it stop raining. And this is a very important detail because Baal is the god of the weather, or at least that's what people believed at the time. If you want rain, you have to go through Baal. And so by sending a drought, God is making a very clear statement, which is that Baal is a phony, that he doesn't exist, that he's powerless, that the people of Israel, when worshiping Baal, are really worshiping a big figment of their own imagination. You see, the people of Israel, they don't abandon God altogether. They don't abandon God altogether, but what they do is try and worship other gods at the same time. The people of Israel apparently don't quite grasp the whole there's only one God thing, or monotheism as it's known in the West. They really think they can worship God with one hand and Baal with the other. That if they need rain, they can talk to Baal, and that if they need something else, they can talk to God. And what God is trying to tell them through Elijah is, you can't do that. Remember the first commandment, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. Well, a couple years pass by, and Elijah has been in hiding the whole time. You know, Jezebel's whole prophet-killing hobby apparently makes him a little nervous, but God comes to Elijah and basically says, Okay, Elijah, time's up. You need to go back to Ahab. I am a jealous God, and my people need to make a decision. They need to make a decision. They can worship me, or they can worship Baal. But they need to decide. And so go to them, Elijah, and make them choose. And so Elijah does. He goes to Ahab, and with all the authority of a prophet, he basically says the following. I want you to get every Israelite, every single one of them, and all of Jezebel's prophets and meet me at Mount Carmel. We're going to have a showdown. My God versus yours. Yahweh versus Baal. What's true versus what's phony. And so I want you to imagine this scene on Mount Carmel. 
people from all over Israel have gathered. Jezebel's 850 false prophets have gathered, and Elisha shows up. And so on one side of the mountain stand all the false prophets, the king, all the government officials, and of course, the worship of Baal. And so something to know about Baal, unlike the God of Israel, he has no moral standard for his people. Okay, so for instance, Baal has no law about caring for orphans or about loving one's neighbor. The religion of Baal promises one thing, and that is material abundance for all who bow down to him and worship. That's it. And so that is one side of the mountain. But on the other side of the mountain stands a solitary prophet who emerges from years of hiding to confront a king and a country. But with that one man is the God of Israel. And so to the naked eye, it seems that Elijah is outnumbered 850 to 1, but to the spiritual eye, Elijah is far from alone. But then you have the people in the middle, and that's the people of Israel. And if you and I are going to insert ourselves at any point in the story, I think this is where we are. We are in the middle between the prophets of Baal and the prophet Elisha at a critical deciding point. The Israelites have tried holding on to Yahweh and Baal. They've been trying to worship two gods all at once, but now a line is being drawn. Elijah, the solitary prophet, challenges the people with these words. And this is a quote, by the way, from 1 Kings. How long will you go on limping with two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Now, contextually, the people of Israel like to use the word walking as a metaphor for a life well-lived, which obviously had God at the center. And you and I still use this phrase. We talk about our walk with Jesus, or perhaps people might ask, how is your walk with God going? We may or may not use that language in our particular circle, but if someone asks us that question, we know what it means. Walking is a metaphor for faithfulness. And Elijah tells the people of Israel that in following Baal, they're not walking, they're limping. That they're torn between two gods and that one of them is a phony. And limping, says Elijah, is a miserable way to live. Now, I think this image of limping is as relevant to you and to me as it was for the people of Israel. False gods fight for our attention all of the time. They seduce us, and we devote our time, talent, and treasure to these false gods. And in the end, they slow us down and keep us from the abundant life we were meant to live. And so the God of prestige, the God of comfort, the God of always being right and getting our way. These are just a few of the gods with a little g that clamor for our attention. And so, to be clear, limping through life did not end when people stopped bowing down to Baal. Baal is alive and well in 21st century America. Remember, anything that we let take the place of God in our life is idolatry. That's the very definition. 
So we're going to go back to this story of Mount Carmel in a bit. But first, I want us to consider this question. What is our Baal? What is our favorite idol? What are we tempted to worship alongside our worship of the one true God as opposed to having our worship of the one true God order the rest of our life appropriately? One of my favorite reformers, John Calvin, once said that the human heart was a factory for producing idols. And what Calvin meant was that all of us, every last one of us, are trying to love something other than God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. And whatever that something is, the Bible gives that a name, and the most common name is an idol. And the thing about idols, they're really sneaky. They're very sneaky. And so, for example, I'm a priest, a pastor, a minister, and so you might think, surely I don't worship idols, do I? Well, it hurts me to say this, but yes, I do. On Sunday, I celebrate the Eucharist, and Monday morning, I worship a golden calf. Okay, not really. That's, that's not a real thing that I do, to be clear, but it's a metaphor. And so let me explain, and this is one of many examples I could offer. In college, I never made a B. I actually graduated with a 4.0 from UT's Business Honors Program at the Red McComb School of Business. I finished number one in my class. I worked really hard in college. But do you know why I did it? I'll give you a hint. It was not for the joy of learning accounting or because I love management. I'm not lying when I tell you this. I wanted to beat everyone else, plain and simple. That's why I made a 4.0. I'm competitive. I wanted to be successful. And so do you think that my innate desire to be successful, which, by the way, is not problematic in and of itself. It's only problematic when it takes over. But do you think my desire to be successful died when I went to seminary? Sadly, no, of course not. And so now fast forward to 2021, and I'm the rector of St. Michael's, and I have a very normal desire for our church to grow. I want you to bring your friends to church and to share your faith. I want the pews to be packed at least once the coronavirus is over. But in the meantime, I want the most online worshipers of any church. But why? Well, in part, in part, I genuinely desire for God's kingdom to expand and for others to find life and new birth in our midst. And to be very clear, that's a very real motivation I have. I do love God and I do want our church to grow so that more people can experience the healing power of Jesus' love in and through our church. Plus, I just think our church is awesome. I love our church. It's been such a conduit of grace for me, and I want it to be a conduit of grace for others. And so that is a very, very real motivation. But I'm like you and every other human being. I've also got a darker side and an ego. And in a religious climate where many churches are not growing, I want to grow. In other words, there's a part of me that still wants to beat everyone. And so when it comes to being a priest, that part of me still wants to be successful. That part of me can still make success into an idol, something that is inherently valuable, as opposed to something I can harness to serve the living God. And that happens in my life when I'm not practicing self-awareness, and that crops up from time to time. And so that's my bail, right? Success for the sake of success. And I have to repent of that many times a week because I know the truth. 
the truth that the God of Israel, the God that Elijah represented, does not call me to be successful. No, God calls me to be faithful. And success and faithfulness are two very different things. And only faithfulness is what God wants from me and for us as a church. And so there, I told you my bail. Success is one of my idols. What is one of yours? Okay, so hold that thought because we need to go back to Mount Carmel where Elijah and the prophets of Baal decide to have a showdown of the gods. And here's what they decide to do. Each side builds an altar, sacrifices a bull, and then places that bull on the wood of the altar. And so we need to picture two altars, two bulls, one mountain, and one wager. And here's what that wager is. The prophets of Baal will pray to their god and ask him to send down fire from heaven to consume their sacrifice, and Elijah will do the same. If the prophets of Baal have their prayer answered, Baal is God. If Elijah has his prayer answered, then Yahweh is God. It's that easy. They flip a coin. Elijah wins and defers to the second half for all you football fans. And so the prophets of Baal get to go first. And here is the Bible's account of what happens. This comes from 1 Kings 18, the message. They prayed all morning long, O Baal, answer us. But nothing happened. Not so much as a whisper of breeze. Desperate, they jumped and stomped on the altar they had made. By noon, Elijah had started making fun of them, taunting, Call a little louder. He is a god, after all. Maybe he's off meditating somewhere, or maybe he's sitting on the toilet, or maybe he's on vacation. You don't suppose he overslept, do you, and needs to be waked up? They prayed louder and louder, cutting themselves with swords and knives, a ritual a ritual common to them, until they were covered with blood. This went on until well past noon. They used every religious trick and strategy they knew to make something happen on the altar, but nothing happened, not so much as a whisper, not even a flicker of response. Here ends the reading. Okay, so this is why I love Elijah and why I chose him for one of the prophets to look at in this series. Elijah invents talking trash. That's right, prophetic trash talk. Elijah invented it. It didn't start in the, in the NFL. It, it starts with Elijah. He uses mockery and sarcasm and humor to show how utterly ridiculous it is to pray to a God that isn't there. How ridiculous it is to orient our lives around anything but the one true living God. Well, the prophets of Baal eventually give up, and now it's Elijah's turn. And just to make sure he's not tricking anyone, Elijah pours 12 jars of water over his sacrifice before praying a very simple prayer. O Lord, he said, answer me so that this people may know that you are God and that your desire is to turn their hearts back. What a beautiful prayer. And God answers. Fire from heaven consumes Elijah's sacrifice and the people's hearts. And at least momentarily, they are turned back to God. In fact, the people begin to chant, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. That's what they say over and over again. The Lord, He is God. And so earlier, I shared with you one of my idols that I have to watch in life, success. The question I leave you with this week is, what is one of yours? 
Maybe it's a desire to accumulate more things and to pattern your life to that one end. You know, maybe it's a habit or an addiction. Maybe it's a grudge that you can't let go of or a desire to be in control of your life at all costs or maybe a desire to be in control of someone else's life. And to take it a step further, who's your Jezebel? Who is it that makes it hard for you to be faithful? What person or people or institution is pressuring you to value something other than the worship and love of God? You see, the reason I ask is this, and this is really the message of Elijah. God is the same today as he was yesterday. God is jealous. He wants all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. And every day, if we listen carefully, God will ask us to choose him over our metaphorical Baal. And so I want you to imagine yourself at the foot of Mount Carmel. To your left are the prophets of Baal. To your right is the solitary Elijah And he asks you this question, how long will you go limping with two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. The question I leave us all with today is, what side of the mountain will we choose?